Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. In our last episode, we covered the campaigns of Alexander from the autumn of 331 to the summer of 330 BC. The spoils of empire had long last been sweet for Alexander, abound with hordes of Persian gold and silver. But the atmosphere of the celebration was betrayed by tension lurking beneath the surface of the structure of the army, which would begin to manifest as cracks in its foundation, as seen with the execution of Philotus and his father Parmenion. In addition, though Alexander managed to reach Darius, or rather the slain body of Darius, his usurper Basos still remained a threat and needed to be put down. Afghanistan is a big place. It also is a land of extremes, a land where the climate is marked by freezing winters and extremely dry and hot summers, temperatures reaching as high as 120 degrees Fahrenheit or as low as negative 10 degrees. Weak levels of precipitation is the standard, the area receiving on average only 12 inches of rain per year in some areas, and whatever water was available was rarely potable resulting in Alexander and much of his officers and soldiers contracting diarrhea from drinking the fetid supply. The geography is very mountainous, particularly along its eastern borders, which is demarcated by the Hindu Kush, known in ancient times as the Indian Caucasus. Any veteran of the 1980s Soviet or the 2000s U.S.-led invasion of Afghanistan can attest to the brutality of trying to maintain dominance over the land. The ancient areas that approximate Afghanistan include Bactria, Arachosia, and Gandhara, populated by aggressive mountain tribes. Sogdiana to the north, on the other hand, would make up parts of Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, but it was controlled largely by peoples who the Greeks would identify as Scythians or Masagatai, nomadic peoples of the Eurasian steppe who were reared in the saddle, popularly imagined as your prototypical horse archer who were extremely mobile and notoriously hard to deal with by conventional land armies. This is the land Alexander had entered into in late 330, when word of Bessos' location in Bactria was learned, and in order to get to Bactria, he needed to cross the Hindu Kush in the middle of winter. After founding Alexandria in the Caucasus, the army penetrated Bactria in the spring of 329, causing Bessos to flee in paddock to Sogdiana, Bessos would not remain free for long, as he was overthrown in a coup by the Persian Spitamenes, and was left behind in a village to be captured by Ptolemy and Alexander. Seeking to make a strong example of those who would commit regicide, Alexander ordered Bessos to be dragged into camp by a dog collar, whipped, tortured, and mutilated, while the king recited Bessos' crimes. Arian simply says Bessos was sent away to be beheaded in Ecbatna, but Quintus Curtius calls for crucifixion, and Plutarch suggests a particularly inventive execution, whereby they tied him into two separate trees that were twisted down, and upon release, the trunks snapped back up and tore the unfortunate soul in half. For the next two years, Alexander would spend his time campaigning throughout the region of Bactria and Sogdiana in order to pacify the former domains of the Persian Empire areas populated by peoples who were not particularly receptive to foreign rule. Tribe after tribe would continue to fight the Macedonians, particularly incensed by the foundation of Alexander Eschete, since that meant Alexander was no mere plunderer. 
he had planned to stay and establish colonies. The Bactrians and Sogdians would also ally themselves with Spitamenes, more out of a enemy of my enemy is my friend versus any fondness for the Achaemenid house. In the summer of 329, the Macedonians marched their way through Sogdiana, forcing the tribes to supplicate. The campaign was particularly brutal, with many cities and villages being razed to the ground and much of their populations being slaughtered, one instance listing some 22,000 people perishing. The rebels of the Sogdians had to hold themselves up in seven fortified locations, and Alexander would take them apart piece by piece, showing no mercy to the men, women, and children who were holed up inside. Later that autumn, Alexander received word that the Scythians were creating trouble in the northern parts of Sogdiana. The Scythians had long pestered the forces of Persia over the centuries, especially seen during Darius I's invasion of the Black Sea region. But through his keen military intelligence, the Basileos had adjusted his disposition by mingling light-armed infantry with ranged troops in order to harass the horse archers, while his phalanxes and companion cavalry would screen and protect these troops, at the same time preventing the mounted horse archers from attacking. It was a tremendous success, and the local Scythian king of the region would shortly surrender afterwards. While Alexander had dealt with the peoples of the steppe, an army of Macedonians were attempting to conquer the last bastion of rebel forces in Maracanda, modern-day Samarkand, where allegedly Spitamenes was residing. They faced enormous difficulties in doing so, with many troops being massacred, forcing Alexander to take charge of the situation. Covering some 180 miles in three days, the king arrived only to find that Spitamenes had fled upon word of the king's return. Pursuit would have to wait as Alexander would decide to set up winter quarters in the city of Zariaspa, and 20,000 soldiers returning from the revolts of August the 3rd in 331 had joined up with Alexander, numbers enough to help garrison the conquered cities of the regions. In the spring of 328, Alexander had decided he needed to mop up operations in Bactria and Sogdiana once and for all. Splitting his forces between commanders like Hyphestian and Ptolemy, he ordered for all remaining rebellious cities to be put to the sword, to patrol and guard the rather placid areas, and to try and settle the cities founded by Alexander, and to resettle the ones previously sacked and depopulated. These resettled cities, made largely of Macedonian and Greek colonists and soldiers, would eventually form the bedrock for the later kingdom of the Greco-Bactrians. That is another story for another day, however. Later that autumn, the Scythians and Masagitai serving Spitamenes would tire of the would-be great king's losses and delays, and in an attempt to placate Alexander and not have him invade their lands, they cut off the head of Spitamenes and sent it to Alexander personally. The rest of the year would pass by relatively uneventfully, except according to Quintius Curtius, who mentioned that in the haste of Alexander in leaving his winter quarters, came face to face with the full brunt of the Afghanistan winter. He had left too early, and a great storm had swept into the area, burying some under snow and ice, and the rest of the 2,000 souls that perished were frozen to death. Some stuck to tree trunks that they had taken refuge against, appearing to be in conversation with one another as if time had stopped before they died. The most spectacular military conquest of Alexander in the region 
would take place at the known as the Sogdian Rock in the spring of 327. The Sogdian tribal king and former follower of Bezos, known as Oxyrates, had revolted against the Macedonians and took refuge along with his family in a great mountain fortress. When Alexander had marched towards the rock, Oxyrates mocked him by assuring that the Sogdians would only surrender if the Phalangites could somehow grow wings and fly up it to them. In classic Alexandrian fashion, yet again driven by a longing to perform the impossible, he had come up with a plan. Gathering 300 volunteers from the most mountainous regions of Macedon, Alex offered 12 talents of silver to the first man to reach the summit, and each man in succession would also receive gold and other talents. Throughout the night, the climbers would scale the face of the rock, securing their progress with iron pegs to be hammered into the ice and tied down with linen. In the journey, 30 would plummet to their deaths into the snow and the valley below. But by the morning, the climbers had managed to reach the top. They sent a signal to Alexander, and an herald called to Oxyrates that the men had indeed grown wings. Probably terrified at the sudden sight of all of these men who appeared seemingly out of nowhere, Oxyrates opened the gates and surrendered the bastion. With this last victory, Alexander had finally pacified Bactria and Sogdiana, two years after he had entered it. On the surface, the campaigns in Central Asia were marked by difficulties in terrain, the often inhospitable climate, and rugged determination of the populations encountered. In addition to all of this, developments in the political backdrop of the campaign have begun to accelerate ever since the deaths of Philotus and Parmenion in 330 BC. Having punished the murder of Darius III, Alexander had now begun to drop the appearance of a Macedonian king to more of one of an imperial ruler, a process known as Medism, or more neutrally, Fusion. The ancient authors used this primarily as evidence of a morally degenerating Alexander, compounded by the excessive drinking to the point of borderline alcoholism, and to an extent it was a common trope, both taken literally and figuratively by Greek and Roman audiences, that the further east you went, the more luxury-loving and effeminate you became, to put it in a polite manner. In some respects, it was less of Alexander trying to step into the slippers of an Achaemenid ruler, and more trying to reconcile the traditions and attitudes of the Macedonians, Greeks, and Asiatic subjects. Alex had before performed religious sacrifices and adopted local titles in places like Phoenicia, Babylon, and Egypt to make an appeal to the local populations. So what made this different? One notable change lamented by the authors was Alexander's adoption of the Qataris, a tiara that was a symbol of Persian and Near Eastern authority, though he would only gradually adjust his outfit, and initially only in the company of close friends. Most scandalously, however, was the temporary adoption of proskinesis. Proskinesis is a process of a bow or a prostration in front of a ruler in greeting. To the Persians, this was simply a manner of being polite. But to the Greeks and Macedonians, this was an outrage. The bowing and prostrating of oneself was a sign of extravagant arrogance, a key trait of most Oriental despots and their slave-like subjects, and this action would only be reserved for the divine and in prayer. 
Most traditional scholarship accepts the picture of Alexander temporarily foregoing the traditional Greco-Macedonian greeting of a kiss on the cheek to test the waters with this new practice. The schools of thought either claim that the whole event was a way for Alexander's self-aggrandizement and inflated notions of divinity, while the other suggests a more pragmatic and unifying Alexander, seeking to be inclusive towards his age and subjects. In a different tone, Professor Hugh Bowden proposes that the whole affair is extremely overblown, pointing to the difficulty of assuming that proskinesis is always referring to divine worship, and makes the argument that, given the obvious reluctance that the Greeks and Macedonians would have in trying out proskinesis, it was most likely a fabrication by later Roman authors to reflect their understanding of imperial cult worship. Further choices by Alexander would continue the trend of Persian-Macedonian fusion, the training of several thousand Asian boys and men, known as epigonoi or offspring, in Macedonian fighting kit and style would bolster his now incredibly diverse imperial army. Alexander had also ordered the instruction of the daughters and son of Darius III in a Greek style of education. So much of his attitudes of change were not exclusively towards the Greeks and Macedonians under his command. Perhaps the most surprising choice of Alexander a choice that probably would lead the Argead line to disaster, was his marriage to the Sogdian princess Roxana. Alexander had met Roxana shortly after the caption of the Sogdian rock, since she was the daughter of Oxyrathes. The young Vasileus fell immediately in love upon the sight of her, and proposed a marriage alliance to her father. In some respects, this was a political bonus to try and recruit Oxyrathes, who had some pull with the troublesome region, onto his side. But all the sources speak of Roxana's remarkable beauty and Alexander's love for her, and she would remain his principal wife for the rest of his life. In some respects, this was a typical Macedonian kingship. Philip II had seven or eight wives upon his death, so Alexander was following the tradition of political matchmaking. But what was probably frustrating to the Macedonian nobility was Alexander's reluctance or outright refusal, to take a Macedonian-born wife to have a Macedonian-born heir to the throne. While many of these decisions were accepted by Alexander's close companions and younger generation of Macedonians, many of the old breed did not particularly appreciate this new style of kingship. In fact, the campaign in Central Asia would be marked by two separate incidences of clashing between Alexander and his subordinates. Callisthenes, a great-nephew of Aristotle, was part of Alexander's court entourage as court historian and philosopher. To say he had dry wit would be putting it lightly. He'd often be making biting remarks towards the other members of the court for their adoption of extravagant wealth and immoral conduct. Whether you could say he was sticking to his guns or being incredibly stupid, Callisthenes would not shy away from reprimanding the Macedonians or Alexander himself. As Aristotle once commented that, while Callisthenes had eloquence, he just had zero common sense. Although the incident could be a later fabrication, Callisthenes had reportedly refused to engage in proskinesis, and when he tried to kiss the king goodbye, Alexander neglected him because of his refusal, to which Callisthenes called out loudly that he should leave the poorer by a kiss. Naturally, these actions would garner her enemies, but his brazenness attracted a number of young followers. One of these young men was a page named Hermaleos, 
who went hunting with the king in the spring of 327, but made the unfortunate mistake of spearing a wild boar before Alexander could make the final kill. In a fury, Alexander ordered Ermoleos to be whipped in front of the other pages as punishment. Smarting and seeking revenge, Ermoleos would gather a number of men in what would be later called the Conspiracy of the Pages, and plotted to murder the Basileos. One evening, they decided to kill the king in his bed as he slept, since the conspirators would be the ones guarding the king's tent that night. The only problem is that Alexander had decided that day he was going to party extra hard, and never made to sleep until the following day. Word of the conspiracy spread from the pages to the ears of Ptolemy, who then relayed the info to Alexander. Ordering the arrest and torture of those who were named as part of the conspiracy, they confessed that the plot was hatched. The sources for this incident are split on what exactly happened next. In the case of Aristobulus and Ptolemy, the pages claimed that Callisthenes was the one to spur them on, claiming that Ermoleos had asked the philosopher how to become the most famous of men, to which the philosopher responded by killing the most famous of men and reminded Ermoleos that Alexander was not a god, but a mere mortal. But, according to Arian, many other authors pointed out that Callisthenes had attracted the ire of Alexander and the Macedonians for quite some time now, and to implicate him in the whole affair was very convenient. Scholar Elizabeth Carney brings up the point that the pages probably had not been spurred on by Callisthenes, something agreed with by much of our sources like Arian and Plutarch, but were probably misled by the complaints of their aristocratic fathers about Alexander's changes to the kingship, and it was strictly a Macedonian affair, something that would not be very favorable to Alexander's image. She also points out that we can't assume that the resistance was only from the older generation of Macedonians, since the pages themselves were younger than Alexander. In any case, the judgment was swift. Ermoleos and his conspirators were stoned to death by members of the army, perhaps to inspire obedience in the Macedonian soldiers, as decimation would in the Roman legions. Callisthenes would be bound and shackled, and would either die of neglect in prison or would be tortured on the rack and hung. The other great incident actually took place the year before, in the autumn of 328. While residing in Marakanda, the modern Samarkand, Alexander was performing a sacrifice to the Dioscuroi, also known as the Divine Twins Castor and Pollux, one of whom was a son of Zeus and the other the son of a mortal man. Later that evening, during the nightly bout of drinking, the court sycophants had begun crooning Alexander about how Castor and Pollux did not compare an exploit to Alexander, and were generally blowing up his achievements and implying that Alexander performed all of these conquests on his own. Clytos the Black, named for his hair color and not his skin tone, was standing by, fuming while listening to the flatterers and bibed himself with wine. Clytos had long served the Macedonians as a cavalry officer, and was extremely loyal to Philip II, while his sister Lanike serving as the nursemaid to Alexander as an infant and he was also the one to rescue Alexander from certain death by the hand of Spithridates at the Battle of the Granicus in 334. But he had also long been chafing under the barbarian practices Alexander had been adopting. In addition, 
Quintus Curtius reports that Clitus had recently been given the satrapy in Bactria and was ordered by Alexander to continue to pacify the regent. But he had not taken too kindly to this, feeling that he was being abandoned in favor of the newer generation of Alexander's inner circle, or, at the very least, his presence was not required. Tension had certainly existed between the two long before. Clytos then felt the need to loudly speak up that the sycophants were excessively heaping praises upon the king, that it was not the work of one man, but thousands of loyal Macedonian soldiers who helped build the empire. All might have been well, but the sycophants then produced semi-satirical verses mocking the victories of Philip and the recent failures of the older Macedonian generals, and how lesser they were in comparison to Alexander. This would not stand. Enraged and very drunk, Clytus ranted that Alexander's achievements did not compare to Philip's, and how dare Alexander for considering denying Philip as his father in favor of Zeus. Turning towards the audience, he leveled a scornful jab at Alexander's allowance of the disrespect shown by the Greeks, foreigners, and barbarians towards the Macedonians, probably in reference to the earlier massacre of the Macedonian troops at the very same site of Maraconda the year prior. He then extended his right hand forward, crying out that Alexander should remember that it was this hand that saved him at the Granicus. Also enraged and also very drunk, Alexander barked out in the Macedonian tongue for the arrest of Clytos, but his companions instead tried to restrain him from leaping up and attacking Clytus. The Hypacipus managed to drag away Clytus into the other room. Things may have ended frostily enough that way, but Clytos came back into the room, quoting, Alas, what evil customs reign in Greece, a line from Euripides and Dromache, referring to men who steal glory from those who actually deserve it. Breaking free of his bodyguards, Alexander managed to grab a spear from nearby and ran Clytos through the middle, and the officer fell to the floor, dead. As soon as the spearhead pierced the body, Alexander sobered up in horror. The king was mortified at what he had done, and was dragged away sobbing and in anguish, at one point trying to commit suicide by following on the very same spear he murdered Clytus with. Residing in his tent, he mourned for two days, and the army and his other officers begged him to come out. Reluctantly, Alexander returned, his spirit sullen. The murder of Clytus the Black is another hotly contested part of the Alexander tradition. The moralists and classical authors point to this moment as being the pinnacle of Alexander's quickly degenerating grasp on his drinking and his sense of megalomania. Some modern scholars portray this story as another example of Alexander eliminating any sort of political malfeasance that prevented him from reshaping the kingship of Macedon into an imperial one. As I mentioned on the previous episode, I don't necessarily buy the long-term cold calculus Alexander eliminating political rivals. But let us look at the ramifications on the death of Clytus. There was no real excuse to justify killing Clytus, unlike preventing a rebellion or conspiracy when it came to Parmenian or Philotas. So the death of a long-standing officer would make Alexander appear the aggressor, especially in the manner it occurred. Though I find the alcoholism take to be a bit overblown, 
it is hard to discount the use of alcohol in the region, especially when drinking water was very limited. And Macedonian drinking sessions were always rowdier than your typical Greek symposium. But if we want to see a parallel, one that probably gave Alexander pause in reflection, we need not look further than the wedding party of Philip II and Cleopatra, where Phil nearly speared Alexander to death in a drunken rage over an insult by the insolent prince. I like the way scholar Elizabeth Carney puts it. If Alexander was planning to get rid of Clytos in the order to reduce the limitations of Macedonian court, he ironically committed an act that was as Macedonian as it could get. Indeed, all the sources report how grieved Alexander was by the whole affair, and I don't doubt that of all the killing Alexander was involved in, this probably haunted him the most for the rest of his life. Progress had been slow in Bactria and Sogdiana. Alexander had spent two full years attempting to pacify the region, the longest he has spent doing so in any one particular area in the campaigns. The resistance of the peoples and the environment itself had made the Central Asian campaign a sordid one. With Bezos and Spitamenes' deaths, all Persian resistance to Macedonian rule was finished. But Macedonian rule if it could be called that anymore, was starting to experience its own strains. The army may have accepted the deaths of Parmenian and Philotas as a necessary evil. It would not be ready to accept the deaths of Clytus and Hermaleos so easily. So far away from home, their kings still had eyes looking even further beyond to a land shrouded only in myth, India where some considered it the end of the world, and perhaps the Macedonians may fall off the edge and be swallowed forever into the unknown. Thank you all for listening and your support of the show. If you want to hear more, please subscribe to me on iTunes and leave a review, or you can follow me on Twitter at HellenisticPOD. Links and sources used will be provided in the podcast description. But until next time, this has been the Hellenistic Age Podcast. <laughs>